And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In a week marked by stunning revelations about President Trump's personal finances and an epically rancorous presidential debate, I could think of no better person to chat with than journalist and author Tim O'Brien of Bloomberg Opinion, who literally wrote the book on Trump. We sat down in the wake of the stormy debate to talk about the president, the campaign, and O'Brien's own rich journey. Here's that conversation. Tim O'Brien, it is, uh, it's, it's good to see you. What a propitious time uh, to be sitting down with you the day after what could only be described as a historic presidential debate, um, not in a good way, but historic nonetheless. Um, first of all, welcome. Good to be here, David. Thank you. You wrote the book uh, in 2005, Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald. We'll be talking about that uh, at length later, but you spent a lot of time with Donald Trump. You probably know him as well as any journalist. Um, were you surprised about his, by his performance last night? Well, I don't mean this in a, like a nya-nya kind of I told you so way, but I don't think any of us should have been surprised by what we saw last night. I think we should be worried and concerned and attentive. But uh, the Donald Trump who was on that stage last night is, I think, the Donald Trump you know, who's, who sprung from his, his father's forehead like Athena, fully armed, uh, you know, in the first years of his life. He's just... He's a 74-year-old man who's been doing this publicly for 50 years. Um, it's not a strategy because he's not a strategic thinker. He's not sophisticated or empathetic enough to be a strategic thinker. This is just who he is. Uh, he's, he's a troubled, damaged person who's a force for chaos. And right now, I think he's, he's very aware that he's well underwater compared to Joe Biden in the polls. I think he feels cornered. And um, and I think that debate was an effort to try to delegitimize Joe Biden narrowly, delegitimize the election and voting more broadly. And then yet it's another chapter in his effort to delegitimize institutions and and basic trust people have in anyone or anything other than him. Um, so no, I wasn't surprised by it. I, I authentically was not surprised by it. The irony is that, um, you know, he, he in many ways delegitimized himself, uh, with that performance. My, my feeling, I, I, I sense, and I don't, I, I know him just a very little, I don't know him the way, uh, you know him, but I did get the sense of a person who knew he was losing. Uh, and in addition to understanding that he, he needed to to uh, delegitimize his opponent, uh, I also got a sense that he was lashing out uh, because he's angry that he's losing and he thinks it's grossly unfair and that he's been treated unfairly. And you could see that bursting out sort of episodically going back to, you know, Biden and and Obama spying on his campaign. And, you know, the, there was he wove several of his his uh, favorite conspiracy theories in there. And you just got the sense that this was a guy who uh, is angry 
that he is uh, losing, and I think maybe fearful of losing. Let me let me ask you about that. I, I spoke to uh, one of his, uh, someone who's close to him, uh, and asked about all of this stuff around the election. And, you know, there's a lot of concern, obviously, about him uh, suggesting he wouldn't accept the results of the election, kind of uh, sending uh, smoke signals to uh to his supporters that they might have to take to the streets and so on. This guy said, you know, I think it's less complicated than that. I think he's trying to create a coping mechanism for what's to come. Like he, he cannot lose. So he needs to create a pretext for losing. And, you know, it's not, he's not, he's not got a grand strategic plan about how he's going to stay in power. He's, he's searching for a way to explain why he wouldn't win. Does that sound right to you? That's 100% right. And he's done this throughout his life. You know, in the early 90s, when he ran a number of businesses off the rails and he was deeply indebted to bankers, he, he pointed all around him at how it was everyone else's fault that he was a serial bankruptcy artist. Uh, and the and the bank the bankers and his investors either lacked compassion or they weren't loyal. But it had nothing to do with the fact a fact with the fact that he's not an adult with his hands on the steering wheel. He wasn't that way in his businesses in the nineties. Um, and and, he, and he, he says this about the most mundane and nonsensical things when when uh, the Apprentice, which was essentially you know a garbage reality show, didn't get an Emmy. He said the Emmys were rigged. Uh, he telegraphed this in 2016 when he's running against Hillary Clinton. As soon as uh, you know his bad poll numbers would begin to crescendo in 2016, he started talking about the election being rigged and um, you know dirty Hillary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And and he's playing that script again. And I think uh, it's it's not a novel insight to say that Donald Trump projects, uh, but the amount of times he calls other people losers or dumb uh, is, and and, you know, I actually think there'd be a great video mashup of Donald Trump at rallies in front of his audiences, punctuating sentences with, okay, I'm a really smart guy. I went to Wharton. Okay. I'm a really rich guy. I'm worth $10 billion. Okay. Uh, And so on and so forth, because he's looking for affirmation from these audiences, because deep down inside, he knows he's ignorant. He knows he's not as wealthy as he is. And when he says to people like Joe Biden, you're not smart or you're a loser, he's deeply fearful himself about being both a loser and being ignorant. And and I do think that um, a, a lot of this fishing expedition he's on of of, of claiming mail in balloting is corrupt when it's empir- that's empirically not the case is to find excuses for why he's losing. So I, I, I do think that observation spot on, David. Everybody remembers in the wake of 2016, even in victory, he, uh, you know, he insisted that the popular vote was rigged, uh, and that's why he got fewer votes than Hillary Clinton, and actually commissioned a, a, a federal commission to try and find evidence of this fraud, which they could not. Correct. Uh, or even his inauguration numbers. Remember that everyone was yes. lying about the popular support at his inauguration and the, the photos were doctored, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the one of the when you mentioned the period before the election, 2016, one of the things that he contended was that the election was rigged because the electoral college system was rigged. Remember, <laughs> uh, that was when they were talking about the blue wall that uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin would deliver the presidency to Hillary Clinton. Trump said this was a corrupt system. It was rigged. They ought to do away with the electoral college. And then it, it was, of course, the electoral college that propelled him to victory. And he stopped he stopped talking about that. And, and now he's saying, you know, mail-in balloting is 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 corrupt and, and, and riddled with fraud. And and yet he, he votes by mail himself as a resident of the state of Florida. And once it dawned on him when he began this attack on mail-in balloting, that all those seniors in Florida who are important voters for the GOP vote by mail, uh, he made sure to say he didn't think specifically there was any problems with it in Florida. So it parallels that stuff he said about the Electoral College in 2016. So knowing him as you do, what do you anticipate the next uh, uh, 30, 33 days, I guess it is now, uh, will be like? Uh, what What is he capable of uh, and what do you anticipate him doing between now and then? Well, you know, he's capable of burning the house down. That that's who he is. If if he can't get what he wants, he will he will roast everything around him. And I think it's not just what happens between now and November 3rd. I think it's the the second step is what happens between November 3rd and January 20th. Um he, he is not somebody who goes gently into that good night. Uh he's um uh you know, there were many things that were disturbing and and I think obscene about the debate last night. Um, but when Chris Wallace gave both um, Biden and Trump an opportunity to say, will you tell your supporters to stand uh, back peacefully and accept the outcome of the election? And Trump had, I think, two or three opportunities to say that, you know, he would tell his supporters to do that. And he wouldn't because I think he re- he revels and relishes the idea, revels in and relishes the idea of um, his folks making trouble at the polls. Uh, and obviously the other thing that he just wouldn't come um, clean on is 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 disavowing white supremacy, but I think that's a different issue. Um, but I, but I think I think he's going to be a force for chaos over the next month. I think I think our institutions are really going to have to, um, uh, stand tall. I think particularly secretaries of state at, of both parties uh, at the state level and, and local, I think, law enforcement to make sure there's not trouble at the polls. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of rabble rousing at a minimum on the street. I think his rhetoric is going to get more and more extreme and um, it, it will involve blaming everyone else around him and trying to incite chaos and dissent. And I hope that doesn't become violent. Biden uh, uh, last night often seemed like a guy who was trying to have a conversation with a heckler standing next to him. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were moments, there were, there were some wobbly moments. I thought he, he held his own. His fundamental decency came through. But what, how do you, when you were watching that, uh, knowing Trump as as you do, I don't know. Maybe you consulted with the Biden people about. I did not. Trump. I did not. They would have been smart to talk to you about it. But uh, do you? Uh, what do you think about the way Biden handled uh, Trump last night or dealt with Trump last night? 
you know, what you said about, about Joe Biden being a fundamentally decent man, you know, we need that so much again in the presidency, regardless of ideology or party. We need people who have integrity, decency, and compassion leading the country through this epically bad moment. And, and that's not Donald Trump. That's clearly who Joe Biden is. I think uh, at different moments when he, I think, you know, went toe to toe with Trump around name calling, saying you're a clown. Um, that's a tricky thing when you're dealing with Trump, because if you don't take him on directly, Trump comes across as a bully. And right. oh, he is a bully. It's not that he comes across as a bully. It comes across that he can bully you. A successful bully. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, on the other hand, uh, the, these kinds of important moments, public moments, shouldn't get debased uh, in the way that Trump can debase them and make them become essentially a clown rodeo. And um, I think by and large, it was a great debate for for, for Joe Biden. And I think it was a great debate because uh, Trump undermined himself. If I was the Biden camp, I would just say, let's not do any more debates because um, this guy is going to turn them in into an utter shit show. Oh, can I say that on your podcast? I'm sorry. You can say anything you want on my podcast, <laughs> okay. as long as it's true. <laughs> okay. um, but the uh, but but yeah, you know, I I we we discussed this last night on CNN and and on, on the Hacks on Tap podcast. Um, you know, my view is a little bit different, which is first of all, Biden did I think benefit from that debate last night. I think he won the debate. Um, secondly, the next debate is a town hall debate, and that plays to his strength and Trump's weakness. And if Trump behaves the way he did last night at the town hall, he'll only dig himself into a a, a deeper hole. And third, I don't think you want to. Uh, I don't think you you. I don't think Biden should be the one to say I'm walking away from this. The country may want to walk away from it <laughs> because it wasn't exact. It was like uh, you know watching. Uh, uh, a train wreck, but, um, but, uh, you know, and Trump, <laughs> Trump can't walk away from it because he needs, he needs these debates and he, he sees himself as a, uh, as, as the star of the show. I can't see him canceling his own show, but, and it also is who he is profoundly that the Trump you saw on the stage last night is who he is. He, he is a bully. You think he feels he did well last night? That he went home and said, I think I did a good job. I think in the immediate rush of it, I don't think he did. And that's why he was saying it was Joe Biden and Chris Wallace versus versus him. He put that up on Twitter in fairly short order. But, the, you know, the reason Donald Trump is a survival is he is such a good survivor is that he is in he creates his own alternative reality bubbles around him. And he will create whatever narrative he wants about how he was successful and then he'll accept that. Um, and I think that, I, you know, I think the difference between 2016 and now, because he did some of this stuff on debate stages in a less extreme way with Hillary Clinton, is there's a track record behind him. And the kinds of things he's trying to attack Joe Biden on, for example, I think one of the signature moments last night was when um, uh, Biden was speaking uh, about Bo Biden and 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 Bo's life and his service to the country, the Trump children have done nothing remotely approaching public service, in any, and neither has Trump himself. Uh, and Joe Biden himself has been a public servant his entire career. Uh, Bo Biden was a great public servant, 
And Trump smeared Bo Biden and, and Joe Biden on the national stage. And I don't think that sits well with voters. Well, and Hunter, and I thought that Biden was poignant when he said, look, uh, you know, a lot of families have dealt with the problem of drug addiction. And, uh, you know, this is my and son. I stand by my son. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, boy, I think that registered with a lot of families across uh, across the country. But I just, I just think, Tim, um, that part of the test here is you have to run the gauntlet. And I don't think you want to be driven off by Trump. Uh, so I, I know that there's a lot of heated debate about whether he should debate or not, but I think they, I think they're going to show up uh, at that next debate at that town hall and we'll see, you know, Steve Scully is the moderator. Who's a very decent, um, hu uh, human being, fine journalist from C-SPAN, but, and maybe some of those crazy C-SPAN callers, uh, are good practice for this, but, uh, you know, I think we've seen uh, Chris Wallace is pretty tough and it's hard to wrangle Trump. I hope they give uh, uh, I hope they give uh, uh, Steve a, a kill button uh, to, because, you know, sometimes you just got to take the mic away. Well, it was a mystery to me last night why Chris Wallace didn't have the ability to cut Trump's mic off and say, I'll come back to you when it's your turn. Yeah, but it's the vice president's turn and, and let's move on. Well, I don't think the, that is in the rules because the rules were written for people who are fundamentally willing to comply with rules who are normal. And he wasn't <laughs> he's not willing to do that. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. This is a good time to backtrack and figure uh, and, and talk a little bit about your journey to becoming uh, uh, the, one of the world's experts on Donald Trump. Uh, a journey that started in my neck of the woods out in, uh, out in Illinois and in, in the Chicago area. You grew up there in a seven of eight kids. O'Brien, seven of eight kids, I'm guessing a Catholic family. Yes. Uh, and, and you went to Loyola Academy, which is a Jesuit uh, school uh, uh, out our way. Uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, about your family and um, about your, your childhood and, and how formational that was in, in you becoming who you are. Uh, we had a very close family growing up. I grew up in Deerfield, uh, a, a suburb about an hour north of Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, my father was a lawyer. My mom was a homemaker. I had four older sisters, two older brothers, one younger sister. Uh, we were very tight growing up. Uh, my parents were wonderful people. Um, uh, I'm not a practicing Catholic, um, but um, I think there's no doubt that Christianity shaped my philosophy of life because I grew up around it in grade school and high school. And I went to Georgetown University for college. Um, and, uh, and, and both of my parents, you know, they weren't holy rollers, but they lived, I think, what they valued in the world. Uh, they were honest, hardworking, loving people. And, and I wouldn't be at all who I am now with our, without Arthur and Barbara O'Brien in my life. And, and all of my siblings. Um, what about the Jesuit education? Uh, leaving apart, uh, you know, the, the the issue of whether you're practicing Catholic or not. Um, the, talk about that, about the Jesuit 
training? Well, you know, it is so intellectually rigorous. You know, when I went to Little Academy, I had a very challenging uh, and rich academic experience there. In, in a lot of ways, when I got to college, college felt easier to manage to me than high school because of that. And, and I think, uh, you know, the classic Jesuit education of trying to ask good questions, um, um, being uh, empirically aware of what's around you, and then uh, I think trying to be dedicated to the idea that that you want to live a good life dedicated to something larger than yourself. So when you're in your, on your rocking chair on your porch, you don't have any regrets about the life that you led. And, you know, there were a number of Jesuits, I think, who really shaped who I am, the things that I pursued academically and professionally come right out of that tradition. What about writing? You had a teacher, I think his name was Mr. Aiello, who uh, was wow. a who was a uh, a big uh, fan of you as a as a writer? Um, what drew you to to, to writing? Uh, you know, Doc Aiello was a history teacher of mine, the late Doc Aiello in high school, and and he was a big influence on me too. I think I I enjoyed writing. You know, we I grew up in a family. My, my parents loved literature. My mother was a wonderful writer. She wrote poetry herself. So these were things I was around and. Um, Doc Aiello in high school introduced me to the idea of wedding writing to things like journalism or, or history or, or, or public policy. Um, and I got that bug, I would say, towards the end of high school. When I went to Georgetown, I thought about going into politics. I ultimately decided not to. Uh, but, but using writing in some way as an analytical tool and a descriptive tool of the world around me. And, and then I just I love beautiful writing. Why did you uh, Why did you think about going into politics? I mean, I, I, everyone in Georgetown is exposed to it, but uh, what was it about politics that attracted you? And we should say you had a spectacularly short uh, <laughs> political career earlier uh, this year. You were a senior advisor to to the uh, Bloomberg for President campaign. Yes. We'll get to that. Yes. But um, uh, but what what attracted you to politics then? Well, you know, I mean, I grew up in a household where my father talked about FDR and JFK. Um, uh, and, and always sort of asking these questions. I remember from a very young age of why do people like that decide to go into politics? They didn't have, they were both wealthy men. They didn't necessarily have to serve. One of them got shot. Um, to me, uh, you know, I didn't grow up with a, um, a jaundiced view of, of politics. I saw it as public, as it, it, I equated it with public service, not power. And that people who went into it went into it with, with noble goals, and there could be really hearty and vicious disagreements about how to achieve those goals. But that it was goal oriented and it was a noble thing. Uh, you know, I think as I got introduced how all the world works, once I grew up, I realized that a lot of it isn't noble too. But I still think of it as a great calling. Yeah, I think I'm really happy to hear you say that because I think one of the biggest things that concerned me about where we are today is just the pervasive cynicism that someone like Trump creates about, you know, as you said, you know, the legitimacy uh, of our of of our democratic institutions, and you know, Donald Donald Trump. Not to return to him, although I think he would insist that we talk about him quite a bit. Uh, the, uh, you know, he 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 doesn't believe anything is on the legit, and he believes that everyone is self interested and everyone 
should do everything they can to advantage themselves and that people in public life uh, are all about that. And that, that's, that's not, you know, that's true in some cases. It's not true in all cases. And there are, you know, a lot of people who do go into public service for just the reason that you say. And there have been a lot of public servants, not elected officials necessarily, who have sacrificed greatly in the last four years because they believe deeply in the principle that you just articulated. One hundred percent, and and not just politicians. In teachers, I've always been fond of teachers. And yes, influenced by yes. Them. I taught history to public high school in New York for a period of time. Um, thought when I was in college that I wanted to be a history professor when I graduated. That's what I thought I was going to do. Um, uh, you know, doctors. Uh, we're yeah. surrounded by people who want to do good things in the world, and the, another reason that Trump poisons the well is because, you know, he is so narcissistic and self-involved that he can't begin to imagine that other people are motivated by those things. And so he constantly poisons the well around those sorts of topics. You, you uh, flashed your uh, literary chops earlier and quoted uh, Dylan Thomas about uh, not going gently into the good night. Uh, you studied literature. I mean, the thing that interests me about your biography, and maybe this is true of really great journalists that I know, but you've had a lot of different looks to your life, a lot of different chapters uh, to your life. You went from being a literature major in college and I guess concluding that you can't hang out a literature shingle. You, uh, you went down to Peru uh, and uh, you volunteered in Peru uh, in a small town uh, of, four, of 600 people, I think, down there. Tell me about going down there. Well, that was a program. It was sort of like a Peace Corps program. It was sponsored by Georgetown University. It was run uh, by a, a wonderful, amazing priest at Georgetown uh, named Otto Hentz. Um, he had been running it in Nicaragua. Uh, that was back in the, you know, in the 80s. Uh, and in, 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 until Reagan um, turned it into an anti-communist hotspot and horror show. Um so the program was moved out of there to, to Peru. Uh, I went down with 15 college classmates. We were given little briefs on different towns that needed very practical things. The town that I went to called Keo was up in the mountains. Uh, it was a small farming community that needed to get to the coast uh, so they could sell their goods. And every spring, the bridges got washed out by floods and rains. So we got donations from the north and hired an engineer in Lima and um, built a bridge so these folks could get their their farm goods down to the coast. And it, this was not sophisticated work. I mean, the engineer was a sophisticated man, but he literally, we, we had sticks of dynamite that we were putting in the rock face, lighting and running away, uh, exploding sides of the rock face so they could put the foundations of a bridge in. Um, and then we put in toilets. You know, there were a lot of kids uh, dying there of, of rectal diseases and... Um, they didn't have toilets. And we put in a very rudimentary sewage system in that town. And, and I did that for a year. And uh, what did you take away from that experience? Long, that's a long way from Deerfield. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the reasons I went is, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a comfortable, um, uh, affluent home and uh, with, with not a lot of worries. And, um, and I, I wanted to expose myself to something that was radically different than what I grew up around, uh, I, I was able to learn Spanish and immerse myself in 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 this town, and I think be part of 
a place where we could just do very hands-on solutions to people's problems. And I went there without it really being a, I mean, those sort of things aren't really resume builders. I, right. I went there purely for the experience of it. And then you took off for Japan. I did. <laughs> also, you know, well, so while I was in, while I was in Peru, I applied, I wanted to teach history and I applied to graduate school programs in U.S. history. And I got into the University of Chicago and Columbia while I was in Peru. And I just didn't feel ready to come back and plant roots and do academia. I wanted to travel while I was still able to be rootless before I was took on the responsibilities of a family uh, and a career. Um, I had always been fascinated with the Far East and I wanted to learn uh, karate. So I went to <laughs> Japan and I, at the time, Time Inc., uh, had a, a program. I, I made $1,000 a month teaching English, conversational English to Japanese businessmen. And um, that was enough to give me room and board. And then I freelanced teaching English for insane amounts of money because that was also the 80s in, in Japan. And I could make about $200 an hour teaching wow. English. So I did that eight hours a week. You buy a, a lot of karate lessons for $200 an hour. Yes. Yeah. I did that for eight hours a week. And banked some money, did room and board, traveled around Asia and, and studied karate. And I did that for a year and then came back and went to graduate school. I ended up in wait, New so York. Wait, 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 before we get to graduate school, what, what belt did you achieve? Uh, really bad. You know, I was the only gaijin in this dojo of 15 very intense Japanese guys and one Australian who was my interpreter. And uh, I, uh, there were, you know, eight, ranks of white belt eight to one before you got to be the first you know level one black belt and then you'd go up eight mm -hmm. and and i got to like level three white belt so uh, i i sucked david <laughs> okay good i appreciate <laughs> like i said you can say anything as long as you're telling the truth you um uh and then you 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 went to columbia and you, you were going to be a you, you were going to enter a doctoral program and then you started writing uh, you started a career in your career in journalism at the same time so what made caused you to diverge from the act from the academy to uh to, to what i would call the real world well when i when i moved to new york i went to, i got a a full um a, a a fellowship from columbia to do my history degree um and University of Chicago didn't offer me any money. So that was simply the reason I ended up yeah, in New York. Yeah, I apologize for that. That's, I, I blame you for that, cosmically. <laughs> and, if I had uh, only known. <laughs> and um, uh, after my first year, um, uh, I did my master's in an accelerated way. I just worked long hours, wrote my thesis, and um, uh, went to work for National Geographic as a, as a summer job, basically, in between planning to come back to, to, to Columbia. Um, uh, the fellowship, though, was only for one year. If I wanted to do a doctorate, I would have had to have, foot that bill my, have footed that bill myself. It was really expensive. Um, and I wasn't, given what I had seen in academia, sure that I wanted to be in that, in that world. So I just stayed, I stayed put at National Geographic for a year. I missed New York. Though profoundly, I really got the New York bug, came back up to New York, taught history in a public high school, and a friend of mine from Chicago and I decided we wanted to try to start a magazine in Chicago or in New York in the late 80s. This is around 88. 
Yeah, well, that was a good idea because New York is really underserved by publication. It, you know, at that time, there was, you know, the Village Voice, which I did a lot of freelancing for. Yes. Progressive and, and liberal and left. And then New York Magazine, which at the time was sort of a, like a midwife to suburban living. And I actually don't think there was a, a magazine that of and in New York that sort of existed between those two poles. And that's what the space we thought we could fill. Uh, we were wrong. I've been wrong about a million things. Um, but <laughs> that's, uh, a tough, that's a tough go. But you yeah. also, you also, because, you know, it, it turns out that you, uh, you attain more academic degrees than you did notches on your karate, <laughs> uh, on your karate career there. You, you, you got uh, a master's degree in journalism and, and then an, from Columbia and then an MBA uh, from Columbia. Why the, why the MBA? Well, so my friend and I went to Columbia with the idea of writing this business plan for this magazine while while we were getting our degrees. And I had no hands-on business experience. I wanted to learn about accounting and finance in a uh, just a, a very utilitarian way. I wanted to have knowledge of how those disciplines worked and how to use them as a lens onto running a good business and how money works in the world. And um and I'm glad I did that. I, I got a lot out of that. Um, but I was never going to be a businessman. I, I just wanted to have those tools. I mean, we did think you know, we could write a much more sophisticated and sharply drawn business plan while in school there. That was also a very kind of pointy-headed approach to it. But that's, that's how I ended up there. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. Now, one of the pieces that you wrote for the Village Voice was about the collapse of the Freedom National Bank in Harlem. And that was a bank that was noteworthy because it was started by Jackie Robinson to to kind of foster uh, small business loans in in Harlem and, and bring economic development uh, to Harlem. And you started off with one theory of the case about what happened to the bank, and it turned out to be quite, quite different than, than you thought. You know, Freedom National Bank was such an important bank. You know, Jackie Robinson was such an amazing, sophisticated man. Uh, he was a Republican, I think, for much of his baseball career and after. Yes. Uh, and, you know, let me interrupt you for a second. When I was 11 years old, I grew up in New York City. When I was 11 years old, uh, I decided I was a precocious kid. Decided that the uh, the candidate for governor in New York State, who was uh, uh, the Democratic candidate, was Frank O'Connor, the president of this of the New York City Council. I thought he was a hack, and so I went and I volunteered as an eleven year old. I wanted to volunteer to help Nelson Rockefeller, and I went up to his headquarters, and they didn't know what to do with a friend of mine. They didn't know what to do with a couple of eleven year olds, and they said, "Well, we don't really have anything for you to do, but how would you like to meet Jackie Robinson?" And he was he was there. He was there. You know, he was an apparatchik for uh, Rockefeller. And we went back and spent some time with him. But, oh, yeah, he saw the Republican I'm Party as the that. party of emancipation. And uh, he was a Republican. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, that lens and that affiliation for him 
made him deeply aware of how important economic empowerment was. And I think he founded Freedom National Bank to be a vehicle in Harlem for making sure loans got to small businesses that were black owned and mortgages got to black homeowners in Harlem. And that was his goal. His wife, Rachel, a one, yes. also an amazing, wonderful yes, woman. Yes, yes. Um, she was very intimately involved and was on the board of the bank after Jackie died. Um, and in the midst of the savings and loan crisis, uh, the plug was pulled on Freedom National Bank. And the argument was that white racists in Washington had shut down this black owned bank because it was black owned. Now, there's some truth to that because I think it was precipitously shut down in, mm -hmm. in a way that white owned banks elsewhere weren't. So there's no question that racism was at work. But when I began to report, you know, this narrative about what happened to Freedom National Bank, what became really clear was that a lot of potentates in Harlem Harlemite insiders had diverted money out of the bank to projects elsewhere in Washington, D.C., or into speculative projects that were completely divorced from the mission Jackie Robinson set out for that bank. And that, like any bank or any institution that makes crappy insider loans, the bank imploded because it, 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 it had a lot of bad loans out there that um, people who should have been loyal to Harlem and weren't helped engineer. And that piece... Uh got you quite a bit of attention, got you probably a job at the Wall Street Journal. And I just want to go over, you know, this is the difficulty of talking about your story because, like I said, it's got so many chapters that, uh, and, I, and I want to get back to, uh, to I want to get back to, to Trump. Um, but uh, you, you worked at the Journal for five years. Then you went to work for the New York Times as a, a business writer uh, and did a lot of great work there. You went to work uh, for several years uh, with Tina Brown, who, who did know how to start magazines, uh, <laughs> and at Talk Magazine, uh, but uh, that did fold. And then you went back to the Times, and you had such an interesting platform uh, at the Times. I mean, you covered all, all kinds of stuff, uh, including early reporting on uh, on you know, cyber crime and identity theft and, uh, uh, you know, Russia and stuff that we're talking about, uh, today. Um, tell me about it. It looks for, a, a, a curious investigative reporter, uh, like, a like you'd be a kid in a candy store in that, in that spot. I was, I mean, I, you know, I was, Never. I was always happy at the New York Times. It is such a great institution. Like any big place, it's got its flaws and makes mistakes. Sometimes they're egregious. But by and large, I think the daily paper the New York Times puts out is a miracle. And uh, or its website now is a miracle, too. And I was fortunate to be around great editors and colleagues there. I got opportunities to pursue a lot of different things there. Uh, they sent me to Russia for a period of time. Uh, um and, uh, you know, I could go on and on. Joe Lelyville, Bill Keller, Glenn mm -hmm. Cremon, Larry and Gracia, Gretchen Morganson, uh, Steve Engelberg. I, I could just name, you know, yeah. all sorts all, of folks. All, there. All, all noteworthy names in, in, in journalism. Yeah. Um, you wrote a book in, uh, in 1998 called Bad Bet, the Inside Story of the Glamour, Glitz, and Danger of America's Gambling Industry. And you, you were focused on the uh, the kind of false the false bet uh, that communities were making Atlantic City of course is a prime example of that that gambling could turn 
their fortunes around. Is that when you started paying close attention to Donald Trump? No, David. You know, I began paying close attention to Donald Trump in 1990 when Wayne Barrett, who was a legendary yeah, investigative reporter, the, the Village Voice, he had written City for Sale, which is one of the great books about you know municipal corruption. He and Jack Newfield wrote that together. It was a bestseller. Yeah. And Wayne got a contract to do a book about, about Donald Trump as his next book. And Wayne came to give a, a talk to the Columbia Journalism School about his goals. And a professor at, at Columbia who was teaching me and was an old acquaintance of Wayne named Robin Reisig said, you two should meet. Uh, I think it could be a kind of a fruitful partnership. And Wayne was looking for a researcher for his book. So I ended up working for Wayne while I was in grad school on his Trump biography as his researcher uh. Uh, from 19, uh, I guess, 1990 to 92, more or less. Uh, uh, Wayne had a house down in Ocean City near Atlantic City. And we had a sort of, you know, Wayne really built the first paper trail on Donald Trump back in it. And remember, in the early 90s, there was no web. So we were going to the Securities and Exchange Commission and getting public filings. I was going to the Casino Control Commission in Atlantic City and getting hearings transcripts. I was going to the Division of Gaming Enforcement in, in Trenton and getting publicly available reports from there. And we had all this stuff on Wayne's table in, in his house in Atlantic City. Uh, and Wayne was an intrepid, smart, uh, unstoppable investigative reporter who really knew how to do document work. And Wayne had done the first big Trump interview in the 1970s in The Voice in a, a, a I think, a three-part series, at least a two-part series about, about Trump. And so I was really, Wayne and I were tied at the hip during that project. At one point, um, Trump had a birthday party for himself. It would have been, I think, like his 40, uh, I guess, like his 45th birthday. And he was doing it at the Taj Mahal, which was going to go underwater shortly. Uh, and he couldn't get enough people to come to his birthday party. So he publicly advertised that he was holding his birthday party in, in one of the main um, sort of auditoriums at the, at the Taj Mahal. So Wayne and I said, what the hell? We should go to that birthday party and let's go, let's go report on it. And Wayne being Wayne, Wayne had a, like a, a, you know, a wrinkled crappy shirt and jeans. And, and I threw on a jacket and a tie to look presentable. And we got there and, off-duty Atlantic City cops who were working as private guards for Trump spotted Wayne, immediately arrested him, and put him in jail for trespassing, uh, which allowed me to grab a glass of champagne and walk right into the party <laughs> and, and cover it. Uh, uh, but I learned a lot from Wayne, and Wayne's Trump biography is the foundational biography for anybody that wants to understand the world Trump came from. And and. Yeah, Wayne was the greatest well show on earth. Time. Yeah, that was yeah. the that was the book. He also did the the sort of seminal work on Rudy Giuliani. Uh, Wayne passed away three years ago. He would have he would have been interested to see how these events uh, have unfolded. And probably not all that surprised. He passed away the night before the inauguration, yeah. and um, I sort of think he got out just in time. Uh, <laughs> but you know, he was you know Wayne was so shrewd. He was on to some of the FBI machinations around Hillary Clinton's campaign uh, in 2016 and Giuliani reaching into some of his old contacts in New York to help facilitate some of that. Um, 
you know, it's really a loss that we don't have Wayne as both a witness and a uh, uh, forager avid... of fact. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, you you uh, in 2006, you became the business editor of The New York Times. But in 2005, you wrote this book called Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald. Uh, and uh, that precipitated a titanic lawsuit that seems relevant to the discussion today. It uh, is. The lawsuit was precipitated uh, because you uh, estimated Trump's wealth as uh, f- being far, far below what he claimed. And uh, you obviously did a deep, deep dive into his finances. Um, and he sued you. Uh, and he sued you in, a, in, in an, ag- an aggressive and relentless way. First of all, tell me, you spent a lot of time with Donald Trump for this book. He gave you access. Um, tell me what that was like. And then tell me what the experience of being sued by Trump was like. You know, so I first, although I was exposed to him through Wayne's book, the first time I ever interviewed Trump was for my gambling book in the mid-90s. And that was, I interviewed him for that for just for the Atlantic City chapter for a few hours in his office in New York. Never covered him again after that. And then when I was at the Times, at my, my job at the time was as a feature writer for the Sunday business section. Um, Trump was yet again on the precipice of bankruptcies with his casinos, uh, right at the time when The Apprentice was a ratings rock star and he was presenting himself as the entrepreneurial guru to the masses, even though in the real world, he couldn't tie his shoelaces. And I wrote a series of stories for The Times about that. And because I was at The Times and because Trump regards, he's a New York kid and a Queens kid who regards, I think, the the Times as a sort of good housekeeping seal of approval, really began to cultivate me. He call, would call me three or four times a week. This is so he, interesting to me because this is, the, the, you know, Trump is uh, relentless in his cri- criticism of The Times in public and other journalistic institutions, but he also is a relentless uh, quarter of and source to these these news organizations that he publicly uh, that he publicly uh, dismisses and denigrates and because he's an addict, uh, you know he he's so deeply insecure and he needs attention uh, in such profound and bent ways that he can't. He'll tolerate bad media coverage. He revels in good media coverage. But the thing that he can't tolerate is no media coverage. And he constantly identifies and cultivates reporters that he thinks have important control or or participation in parts of a dialogue that he wants to participate in. And he can't help himself. Uh, You know, he, he loves the very thing he claims to hate. What did he say to you about your reporting? You 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 traveled around with him. You traveled in his plane. You uh, this was after then you wrote this series of pieces in the Times that were clearly uh, not pieces that he relished. Um, and that's why I got the book contract was because of the pieces that were in the Times. A number of publishers approached me. I didn't really want to do a book uh, that was a purely. Um, investigative book about Trump himself, because I felt I had done that with Wayne. Um, I really wanted to do a book that placed Trump in the culture and tried to answer this question of why does this guy who's who's stumbled or, or had full-scale blowouts and collapses in so many parts of American life maintain this traction 
this weird traction in the American imagination for decades, whether it was casinos, real estate, politics, reality TV, and so on. And, and so the, I wanted to do a book that answered that question. And I wasn't sure if he was going to participate with that or not. Um, uh, but, you know, he was just, uh, you know, I asked him at one point, we had gone up uh, into his, uh, into his uh, triplex at Trump Tower, which for those who haven't seen it in pictures or been there, it's sort of this cross between uh, Caesar's Palace and Louis the Fourteenth on acid. <laughs> the whole uh, design and aesthetic of it, and uh, and he was getting ready to go and golf, and I was sitting in a corner of his living room. There was this big Muhammad Ali picture book on one of the tables, and when he came out, he saw I was looking through it, and he said, "That's a great book." And I said, "Oh, you know, I think Ali's an amazing man." And he said, "You know." We're getting into the elevator. And he said, you know, you and I should go to a match together sometime in Atlantic City. And I said, after the book comes out, I said, Donald, you're not going to want to go to a boxing match with me in Atlantic City after this book comes out. He sort of pauses and he goes, yeah, you're really going to scalp me, aren't you? And I said, well, I don't, I'm not looking to scalp you, but there's a lot of parts of this book you're not going to like. This sounds exactly like the conversation that Bob Woodward had with him. It's very similar. And at another point, we were driving out to his golf course. He was driving in his his Mercedes Maybach, Maybach, and we were going out to Bedminster. And um, he said, you know, I, I could just sue you if I don't like the book. And I said, do you really want to sue a, a, a reporter with institutional backing? And he said, yeah, I got no problem with that. And I said, well, then why did you participate at all? And this is on tape. It's in, this encounters in the book. And he said, well, three things. Uh, one, I really like you. I, I don't think that's true, but that's what he said. I think what that was. Well, it's really not really true anymore. Yeah. He said, number two, uh, I considered it a, a, a challenge. Um, I wanted to see if you could see who the real Trump was. And then that really interesting thing he said was number three, you know, I don't really care what you write because I basically have my own printing press. If you say something negative about me, I can go on the Today Show or call up the New York Post and say, Tim O'Brien's a loser. Tim O'Brien's a whack job. He's a dog. And and I'll just do that. I can do that. It's like I got my own printing press. And he's right. You know, he that's pre-internet when he's saying that to me. That's yeah. 2004. But that's now it's turbocharged. On social media. And he really can go directly over the media's head. Yeah, yeah. Um, he uh, So in this lawsuit, uh, you your lawyers took depositions from him in which he repeatedly lied and uh, uh, but qualified these lies that in the context of his feelings, like he didn't feel like he was lying. Explain that. Well, the, the problem with, you know, that deposition. So, you know, the book comes out in 2005. He sues me for um, $5 billion, which was a lot bigger than the advance I got on the book <laughs> in 2006. It was essentially, you know, $5 billion was the difference between what he was saying he is worth at the time, which yes. was $6 billion. And my sources were saying it was 150 to $250 million. Yeah, um, that's a big gap. It's a big gap. And, you know, I don't really care how much money he has. I was I was more interested in how he'd use this to keep himself in front of the media for years. Uh, but he also was completely lying about it. And uh, um, and uh, so he sued me. I think he thought, you know, he sued my publisher, Warner Books and me personally. He didn't sue The New York Times because I think he thought the book publisher wouldn't back me up. He knew The Times would. And he thought, I think he thought the book publisher would roll over. And to their credit, they didn't. They hired Mary Jo White as my yeah, attorney, future the head former of the SEC. US attorney. 
Yeah. And and former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. And her two great partners on my case, uh, Andrew Ceresny and Andrew Levine, were an incredible legal team. Trump was represented by Mark Kasowitz. My lawyers ran circles around that crew. And I, frankly, you know, my wife is a lawyer and she finds this perverse whenever I say this, David, but I actually enjoyed the whole thing. Uh, There were moments in it, you know, where, you know, like they deposed Bill Keller or Arthur Sulzberger on really slender, where other people got harassed because Mm -hmm. of my lawsuit. And I did feel badly about that. But, you know, you don't get subpoena power often as a reporter. Uh, but you yeah. do if you're party to a lawsuit. And of course, we then, as part of the discovery process, got his bank records, his business records, and his tax returns. And then when it came time to depose him in December of 2007, two days, two eight-hour days, my attorneys completely roasted him. And while he tried and did lie during that deposition, they were able to just push across the table financial records that showed that claims he made about his net worth or how profitable his businesses were and so on were false. Um, he wanted to get that deposition sealed. Um, and my lawyers towards the end of the case made a motion to have it attached as an exhibit to some of the court papers, arguing that the deposition was dispositive because it showed that my book was on firm footing and uh, and wasn't uh, an act of malice. And um, they worked mightily to get the depression or the depression, the deposition suppressed. Uh, the court rejected that. It became a public document in, you know, he lost the case in 2009 um, and then he appealed it and lost. Uh, it didn't even, the appellate court wouldn't even hear it. The judges wrote scathing dismissals of the case and it went to sleep in, you know, 2011. And I thought I was now permanently done with Donald Trump in my life. And then, in 2015, he rolls down the escalator in Trump Tower. Yes. And I rolled over to my wife and I said, you know, this is like the ghost of Christmas past or something. I can hear the chains rattling around in our attic. Now, are you proscribed from talking about what was what were in what was in those tax returns? Uh, I'm yes, I am. They were there's, you know, an NDA around them. They weren't turned over in the court. They were given to my lawyers at Devavoy's and we looked at them in a conference room there. And I can't talk about the specifics in those returns, but I can talk generally about why Trump's worried by those returns. And, I, and I've written, I think, three columns. For, for Bloomberg View, where you're the editor now. Uh, I'm a senior. I'm a senior columnist now. It's now Bloomberg Opinion. But from I guess I did three columns on the topic between 2015, four probably, between 2015 and 2020. Um, all around, why doesn't he want these to come out? And I think there's four broad areas, and I think two of them aren't that germane to the future of Donald Trump. One is that, you know, it, 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 they would show that his business isn't as robust as he claims it is. I think the second thing is it would show that he doesn't give a hoot about charitable giving. Um, the, the two other areas that I think are really salient and important are... Um, uh, his business ties, uh, who he does business with, and sources of foreign income. And and I think that's been the sword that's hung over the cloud, dark cloud that's hung over his administration since he became president because he is so fundamentally conflicted because of his financial and business ties. He can't make clean public policy given all of his business ties that he hasn't authentically distanced himself from. Um, and, and it's wedded to the fact 
you know, the framers never envisioned somebody like this coming into the Oval Office encumbered with all the financial conflicts of mystery he has, but also layered with the fact that he is uniquely corrupt. He doesn't believe in the rule of law or he's unethical. He pushes every boundary around him. He's a, law, a profoundly lawless and corrupt man. And, uh, and, and the tax returns are one avenue for seeing that written into stone because they're his own returns and they're his numbers. And what do you think his exposure is, uh, his, his legal exposure? Because one thing that struck me when the New York Times dropped this blockbuster, they got 20 years of his tax records, uh, said there are many years he paid none, and two years, 2016 and, uh, and 17, I guess, he, he paid 750 dollars, which is de minimis, uh, to say the least, for a guy who claims to be a billionaire. Um, but it struck me, and Michael Cohen testified to this in front of the House, that, um, you know, he, in order to get loans, uh, he, you know, he couldn't, have produ- he couldn't produce that picture that he produces on his tax forms to, in order to eliminate his tax liability. He couldn't produce that and, and get loans from anywhere at least anywhere credible. Um, but, uh, you know, so is there a tax fraud exposure here? And Absolutely. not just a tax fraud, but a bank fraud exposure. And accounting fraud. And in fact, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is looking at those very things right now. They've made that public in a yeah, court in filing, a filing about yeah. three weeks ago. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of the themes that are in the Times as recent reporting this aren't new. I think there's some decade-old themes, decades-old themes here. But... It's such an important public service that they're putting financial and numeric clothing on this, and portions of which are really indisputable. And Trump and his children, who also work at the Trump, is all the eldest children, Ivanka, Don Jr., and Eric, are all all have serious legal exposure around the issue of whether or not the Trump organization has inflated the valuations of their assets in order to get investor, <coughs> pardon me, investors or bankers. Um, mm-hmm. to, to put money on their tables um, or, uh, 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 you know, to otherwise obfuscate or engineer uh, their business dealings to make them look like something they're not. Uh, I think there's real issues around uh, possible money laundering exposure that, that, that they have to be concerned about um, globally mm-hmm. and domestically. Uh, you know, one of their big projects in Lower Manhattan, the Trump Soho Hotel, their partners on it, one of their primary partners on that was a career criminal. There were allegations among the partners in that project that it was being used for money laundering. All of this stuff's in play now. The other thing that's very significant is that it's the Manhattan District yeah. Attorney. And right. that's not a federal non-pardon- office. Non-pardonable. Non-pardonable and out of his control, essentially, too. And uh, that's going to be waiting for him whether he wins or loses in November. How much does that animate his uh, his sort of frenetic uh, behavior right now? I think it, it has to be profound. You know, he got very lucky with with Robert Mueller's investigation. I was deeply disappointed that that Bob Mueller, as we now know through Andrew Weissman's recollections, but I think it was apparent even in the late stages of the Mueller investigation, chose not to do a financial investigation of the president. And you can't under if you're looking at Russia's influence over Donald Trump, uh, is there po- 
well, their clear influence. And then looking at it, what possibly animates that, you, you can't understand that without following the money trail. And um, and Mueller chose not to go that route. And I think it's, and I think during the times when the Mueller investigation was heated and it wasn't clear where he was going, Trump was like a caged animal. Then that went away, right? And, and immediately began trying to do corruption in Ukraine. Uh, but um, there's now, it's revivified essentially in the DA's office. And I think that unnerves him. Before we go, I should just ask you about your brief uh... Uh, experience in politics. You work for Mike Bloomberg. He decided to run for president late, uh, spent a lot of money, um, uh, obviously a very formidable person. Um, what happened? Well, you know, I think the theory of the case for Mike in the fall of 2019 was it was there was likely to be a brokered convention and the, and the party, the DNC machinery looked underfunded and wobbly. And uh, it was an opportunity to revivify par the party's resources and uh, make an argument for somebody who could bridge the gap between different divisions in the party. Um, and, and I believe that. I thought that was a, 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 a strong argument. I thought, um, you know, Mike's greatest skills is hands-on ability to solve problems was meaningful. Um, I'd never worked on a cam. You know this far better than I do, David, that this world and that life, uh, you know, I found it to be incredibly meaningful work. Again, this issue of, you know, politics and public service, you know, when you go into a, a state or a town as a reporter, you're going to try to listen closely to people and, and, and tell their story to the world. I found on the campaign going into these, these areas, where people were really distressed and concerned about their healthcare coverage and their jobs, and then and 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 the terror that is Donald Trump. Those were always the three issues in play. Yeah. Um, they're looking for you to help solve those problems. Yes. And it's a very different no, relationship people, to those people folks. have concerns that are real, that are not a game. Uh, and, and I found it really meaningful work in that regard. But I think we also misread the landscape. Voters are smart. It's humbling how smart voters can be. And and I think they were making calculated plays throughout the entire uh, primary season about who can beat Donald Trump. And different people appeared to be capable of doing that. That was the uh, calculation that Joe Biden made when he entered the race. That was Mike Donlin, his strategist, great insight, which is that at the end of the yes. day, this is what it's about. Yes. And, um, and, and, and I think it turned out to be incredibly uh, uh, prescient. Um, you know, as we're and, and wise, and wise as we're seeing today. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, uh, Tim. Uh, it's always great to chat with you. Um, Thank you, David. It, this is going to be. A, uh, I'll be reading your columns in Bloomberg View over the next few weeks. These are going to be historic weeks uh, in many different ways, uh, and a trial for our democracy. And um, you know, I, I agree with you on the wisdom of voters. I hope that people keep faith in these institutions. Um, and uh, that, to me, is the most important element of what happens in the next few uh, weeks and months. And I know you're going to be writing about that. Well, thank you for having me on, David. You know, one of the things that Trump has done is he's ripped this Band-Aid off ideas we have about what our country's about and where our values reside. And I think... Um, uh, as disgusting as he is about going about that, it's a challenge to all of us 
to stand tall for what we believe in and push back against all of these obscenities and and be really open and clear about what we need to do to make sure nothing like this happens again. So I'm glad to talk to you about this stuff and thank you for having me on. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.